Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, man. So good to be with you guys. Uh, If we haven't met, um, I've been out for a minute. My name's Spence. I serve as a lead pastor here at Mercy Church, and I'm excited to be back uh, next week, kicking off a series through the book of Ephesians. I'm so excited about it. Uh, We'll be jumping into that next week. And actually, before next week gets started, if you're like, where's this guy been? Uh, Man, we usually take, my family and I take the month of July and the elders grant me that month of July to fast and pray and think through what does God have for us in the next year. In addition to that, I was working on a little project that we're going to kick off in August, just called How to Study the Bible. It's a course that I'm going to be teaching for Mercy Church right here at our Providence Road campus on Wednesday nights. And I just want to invite you to come and join us if you want to know how to study the Bible or learn how to study it with some friends. That's what we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights right here through the month of August and the air conditioning will be on. All right. That's my commitment to you. Uh, listen, Today, I'm very excited to introduce the man that's going to be preaching for us. Uh, The pastor preaching for us today is named Curtis Andrusco. Um, Pastor Curtis is one of the teaching pastors at the Summit Church up in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Um, You remember maybe a little bit earlier this year, their lead pastor, J.D. Greer, came, preached for us. The Summit Church is our sending church. When we planted years ago, we planted out of the Summit Church back in 2015, where I served alongside of Pastor Curtis. And it is a real joy for me to be able to share you with him and him with you. This is a dear friend now uh, for years, and I've watched him grow in the gifting God has given him. Uh, and it's just, a, it's an honor to have him come and preach for us. And he has a word for us today. He's already shared with me. I'm so excited about it. So I don't want to take up any more time. Will you guys join me, Mercy Church, in welcoming Pastor Curtis and Drusco to come and preach God's word? Happy day. Yeah. One day, two white guys are going to figure out like a cool handshake we can do. We're going to figure it out, man. That's our commitment. Um, yeah, thanks. My name's Curtis. If you have your Bible, open to 1 John chapter 1. Um, that's at the very end. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far, uh, but it's close back there. Uh, as you're turning there, like Spence said, man, what an honor to be here. Um, in fact, do you guys, uh, y'all appreciate your lead pastor. If you appreciate him, can you put your hands together? Um, Spence. Yeah, probably most of y'all saw him get up here and you're like, yes, he's back. And then he was like, next week. And you're like, dang it. And so you're stuck with me. All right, that's, that's how it goes. Um, I am, my, my wife and I have been in Raleigh-Durham area, originally from Atlanta, Georgia, um, but been up there at the Summit Church for just celebrating my tenure on staff there. Um, we have four kids. Uh, it just, one of those pictures just went up, didn't it? We're, we'll get there. Uh, we have four kids, uh, three girls and a boy. They're all eight and under. And so um, eight, seven, five, and three, I, I think. Um, I used to think my dad was an idiot for not remembering my birthday. And now I'm like, I get it. I get it. Um, yeah. So today's offering is going to go toward a GoFundMe for future weddings, just in case you're wondering. Um, but, you know, uh, Pastor Spence, he really, man, he's been great. It's been so awesome um, seeing him. Same, likewise, just seeing him grow in the gifting that God has given him. You guys have a phenomenal pastor. And uh, I just wanted to let you know, like on behalf of him, you guys have even just been here the last day or so, honored me so well. Pastor Spence honored me so well that he actually was like, hey man, on your way over, would you mind stopping at my mom and dad's house in Greensboro and picking something up? And so that's how much he honored me. Um, but what it enabled me to do is get some pictures of Pastor Spence. And so uh, let's see what we got here. This is the man that you call your lead pastor, okay? Uh, this is this is probably about the Spence that I met over small groups. And so Um, You know, he probably tells you all the time, man, discipleship happens in relationships and those relationships happen in small groups. Um, This was the man that came up with that. Okay. So for what that's worth, but God's grown him. Let's see. God gave him a helper. Oh man, this is visionary Spence. Look at that. Spence and Courtney came into his life. This was, um, to my knowledge, the first time he had ever worn a shirt with a collar. So praise God, Courtney. 
Um, God's given him some vision, and uh, but we know vision doesn't always turn out great. So let me see. Like sometimes this is this is, yeah, man. I mean, Spitz, bro. Olin Mills did you dirty. That's all I gotta like. Spence was in the mall and he was like, let's not go to Hot Topic. Let's go in Olin Mills. And this is what, this is what came out. Um, go to the next one. Uh, uh, wow. <laughs> um, all I have to say is if you don't believe in miracles, then um, no, that's it. Uh, this is, go to the next one. This is the Spence I know and love. Um, this is your pastor, man, just preaching the paint off the walls. Um, I can tell you, uh, we got to hang out a little bit at the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans where he was serving and doing some stuff. And Spence has one of, had one of the highlight moments at the entire convention. Um, but man, you, you guys have a faithful brother leading you. Um, and he really is a gift to, to both me. And I hope I know he is to you as well. And so um, hopefully you have found your way in all that time to the book of 1 John. Okay, so 1 John chapter 1. Um, can you do this for me? Can we all stand in honor of the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 1, we're actually going to read the whole chapter, but fret not, it is only 10 verses, all right? 1 John chapter 1 says this, says that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it. We testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5. And this is the message we've heard from him, and now we proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Well, unless you are Canadian, you probably do not recognize the name Charles Templeton. Um, Templeton, as a young boy growing up, uh, faith was not a part of his life until around the age of 19, he actually overheard his mom in another room talking about God and the happiness that her newfound faith had brought her. So what that led Templeton to do is he kind of began taking this mental inventory of his life. And in his words, I quote, he said, suddenly my life seemed empty and wasted just in an instant. So he goes to his room, he kneels beside his bed and he is overcome with quote, a sense of enormous guilt. And then listen to what he said next in his journal. He said, it may have been minutes later, or much longer for there was no sense of time, but I found myself at the center of a vast emptiness. In a moment, a weight began to lift. An ineffable warmth began to pass through my entire body. And it seemed that a light had turned on in my chest and its refining fire had cleansed me. I mean, talk about an intense experience, right? Well, this experience led Charles Templeton into the ministry where he actually began putting together traveling revivals where he would preach the Bible and preach the gospel to tens of thousands of people. Along the way, Templeton uh, convinced another guy to join him, one of his best friends who also had a knack for preaching. Perhaps you've heard of that guy. That guy's name is Billy Graham. The crazy part is that in the 40s and 50s, Charles Templeton was generally acknowledged to be the most gifted and anointed young evangelist and preacher of his time, surpassing even Billy Graham in fame and popularity. So it begs the question, why have you arguably never heard of Charles Templeton? Why in Charlotte is there not like a Charles Templeton roadway? That's because later in his life, 
He would go on to renounce the very faith that he professed. He would become an ardent atheist, all because he believed that the Bible was outdated. So here's this man who has this religious experience, becomes essentially what we would deem from outside looking in a disciple. He slowly becomes a doubter because he begins to doubt the scriptures and he ends up being a complete deserter of the faith. And I tell you that because I can't help but wonder how many people in the Bible Belt here at Mercy Charlotte over in RDU at the Summit Church might be on a similar path as Templeton. I mean, every time, now that I know his story, every time I hear his name, I have to literally hold back tears because it brings to mind people that I know, people that are in my family, people that are friends of mine who are headed down a similar path, people who are deceived into believing they are a follower, but actually their entire faith is based on a one-time spiritual experience rather than based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we go back and look, did you hear how Templeton described his so-called conversion? He talked about it as a weight that was lifted. Uh, an indescribable warmth, the fire that cleansed from within. What's missing from that conversion experience? Jesus, repentance, faith, belief. And see, our text today in 1 John deals with an issue that is as prevalent today as it was in Templeton and Graham's day. It's the issue that deals with spiritual assurance and identity. Questions like, what does a real Christian look like? How can you tell a real Christian from somebody who might just be professing to be one, but actually isn't? Um, how, How do you know you're truly saved? I mean, can you know if you're truly saved? And what the book of 1 John does is it presents us with two very clear categories of people. Disciples, followers of Jesus, those who have confessed him as both Savior and Lord, and then those who are deceived. And the hard part, again, is that these groups look eerily similar. Both groups have an intellectual understanding of the gospel. Both groups believe they are truly following God. Both groups say and believe that they have fellowship with God. Both groups usually even acknowledge that they sin. Neither group believes that they are faking it. So how can we tell if we are a disciple or if we are deceived? Let's go back and look at our text. Look back at verse one. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands. He's talking about Jesus concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Basically what John is saying here is he's saying, hey, before we get to the evidence of the Christian life, we got to lay the foundation. Before I tell you what I'm about to tell you, I need to tell you that this whole thing isn't made up. That that what I'm about to tell you is not from human invention or ingenuity. It's based on a real person who really existed, who really walked the earth, who really taught the scriptures and preached specific commands, who really died on a very real cross for your very real sin. And so he says, when you hear this gospel from me, you're hearing it from a man who knew this Jesus, who saw him, who heard him, who touched him. And the words we teach and preach ourselves are from God and we are just passing them along to you. And then look at verse four. He says, we're passing them along. We're writing these things. Why? So that our joy may be complete. Your version might read that, that your joy may be full. Um, I I told you I have four young kids. And if you have kids, you know this to be true. Uh, Man, the things that kids remember versus the things that they don't is absolute insanity. Like my kids cannot remember to put their socks and shoes on, even though I've asked them five times in the last 90 seconds. Yet my kids remember that one time that I burned a grilled cheese. And to this day, they're like, don't want that. You know, like it's, it's ridiculous. Like one time this thing happened, we, we have this thing, um, we're like fairly healthy eaters, but we have a, we do cereal Saturday at our house. And so it gives us some, we do pizza and movie night Friday and then cereal Saturday. And, you know, uh, as a kid, you're like, 
your parents probably did something like that. And you're like, this is awesome. My parents love me so much. And as a parent now, I'm like, I'm just doing this so I don't have to do anything else with you. Like pizza and movie is for my sake, not yours, I promise. Uh, but Cereal Saturday, uh, man, I mean, it was probably two years ago. I mentioned one day that like Frosted Flakes were like my favorite cereal. And now to this day, every single Cereal Saturday, my kids like fight each other when we pour their cereal and they're like arguing who can get me a Frosted Flake first. So like, dad, do you, this is the biggest one. Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? And they like shove at each other and it's always like a fight breaks out. Um, it's because one time I told them that I love Frosted Flakes and they're doing that. The, the reason they want to share that with me is because they know the joy that their cereal has brought them and they know the joy that it will bring me. They just want my joy to be complete. So they're trying to share the very thing that they love with their dad so that he might love it too. And that's what's happening here. It's very simple. John is just telling them that, hey, this gift of Jesus Christ as found in the gospel, and he's just offering it to them so that their joy may be full. John himself has experienced the joy and the pleasure and the life and the satisfaction that comes from relationship with Jesus. And he just wants everybody else to experience the same thing. And he gets this from Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that my joy, Jesus's joy that emanates from the Father himself might be in you and that your joy might be complete. So when we open the Bible, we tend to read it as kind of a list of do's and don'ts. What Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not telling you these things so that you can be burdened with a longer religious to-do list or to feel, feel more guilty about how you fall short. I'm telling you all of these things so that your joy may be complete, so that you can have a joy that only God can give and that the world can never take away. But listen, this joy only comes to true disciples of Jesus. And so what 1 John does from this point forward is it kind of puts together some litmus tests for our salvation. 1 John's going to be really clear that when it comes to following Jesus, there's no gray area. That either we're walking in the light as a disciple or we're walking in darkness and we're deceived. Unless you think this is just something from John, you're going to see this even more clearly in the book of Ephesians when Pastor Smith starts opening that up. And so look what John has to say, verse five. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and now proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now what light is to our natural world, I mean, all light does, right? It just illuminates darkness. It reveals what is there. What light is to our natural world, God is to the spiritual world. For God to be light means he is the source of all truth in the world. That God himself is life, he's purity, he's beauty, he's goodness. God is light means that God is always the goodest of good. That he's always radiating goodness. Like the sun is always radiating heat and light. That his goodness and his perfection are part of his very nature. Another way to look at this is it means that it also means that God is so good that he can't do anything that's not good. God cannot act in a way that's unholy or unrighteous or evil. That's why the psalmist would declare, God, I have no good apart from you because you are good yourself. God is always good because again, God's like the sun. If you think about it in those terms, the, the sun is always shining. Like y'all know that, right? You can hide yourself from the sun. You can try to get far away from the sun. Sometimes clouds cover the sun, but the sun is always there. The sun's always the same. And anytime you're in the presence of the sun, the only thing you're going to feel is warmth and light that radiate off of it. Or right now you feel humidity and absolute hell sometimes is what it feels like. Like it's awful right now. That's what God is like. Not the awful hell part, cut that. <laughs> but... God does good all the time because God is good all the time. Bad cannot come from God because God himself is literally infinite goodness. He's not like a shadow whose goodness lengthens or shortens depending on what day, time of day it is. God's not moody. He's not capricious. You know, sometimes you look at him and you think he's leading you with tender love, but then other times you think he's irritated with you. So he's going to mess with you a little bit or ignore you or lead you toward destruction. That's not our God. God is light. God has one thing in his heart. He has constant, unfailing, never-ending, forever goodness toward you. He's not like the spouse who left you. He's not like the father who abandoned you. He's not like the friend who betrayed you. 
He's not like the boss who belittles you. He'll never be unfaithful to you. He can't. It's against his very nature. He can only and always act according to light because he is light. And that's good news. But with that good news, the counterbalance of that, there's also bad news tucked away in this too. The bad news is that because God is perfect and holy, just like we were singing about, it means that he cannot dwell with anything or anyone that is dark or unholy because his light, his perfection, just like light consumes darkness, will consume that darkness. So the slightest hint of imperfection in God's presence will be eviscerated because in him, there's no darkness at all. It'd be like trying to hold a tissue next to the sun. It's just gone. And here's the harsh reality. There's darkness that exists in every single one of us. The Bible calls that darkness sin. And without God's intervention, you and I are the tissue and God and his holiness are the sun. And I know you're like, like, really? That's a pretty heavy accusation to just come on over from Raleigh and drop that on us. I'm not making that accusation, the Bible is. And here's the reality check that some of us need to hear. You're deceived if you claim to know God relationally while sinning habitually. You're deceived if you claim to know God relationally while sinning habitually. Where'd you get that? Look down at verse six. Verse six says, if we say we have fellowship with God, While we walk in darkness, he doesn't mince words here, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Think about it like this. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and prepare you guys. If you have not heard already, when Pastor Spence comes back, one of the things he discovered on his sabbatical is the game of golf. Okay. So just prepare yourselves for a lot of golf illustrations and analogies. Um, I think it's like once a man hits a certain age, he has to choose his destiny, right? It's like golf or smoking meats or lawn care um, the lake, like one of those things you're like, I just got to choose. This is, this is life now. And so, um, what if Pastor Spence gets up here and tells you about golf and then you see him after service and you're like, man, I love golf too. And you're like, what kind of clubs do you have? And he's like, I don't have any. You're like, oh, so you just rent them when, when you go, like, where do you like to go? And he's like, I'm, I don't go anywhere. It's like, oh, okay. You just mean you love to like watch golf on TV, right? He's like, no, don't like that either. You're like, so you just like the the clothes, like you're striving toward a Peter Millar kind of vibe and you just like driving the cart and being outside. And he's like, don't really do any of those things either. <laughs> At some point you'd conclude, you'd be like, I-, I know you say you love golf, but I don't think you're a golfer at all. <laughs> in fact, you say you have fellowship with golf, but you're lying. You're not a participant in golf one bit. The evidence is clear. And listen, I know that's kind of goofy, but it's the same with Jesus. Just because you are a professor of faith does not mean you are a possessor of faith. To walk in darkness means to live and to act in a way that is not in step with Jesus and his teachings that are found in the scriptures. You understand that? Like that's where we're at. And it might sound ridiculous, the golf thing, but that's what he's saying that you cannot call yourself a Christian if you do not align your life with scriptures that explain what a Christian is in the first place. This is foundational. For for a true follower of Jesus, the foundation of your life, yes, is the finished work of Jesus Christ, but practically must be the word of God. In fact, listen to this. The way you show you have submitted your life to the God of the word is by how much of your life is submitted to the word of God. The way you show you have submitted your life to the God of the word is by how much of your life is submitted to the word of God. You cannot say you love Jesus and regularly and habitually participate in the very things that put him on the cross. In church terms, it means that Jesus cannot be your savior if he is not also Lord of your life. You can't claim to give him your eternity all of your days if you are not submitting to him each and every day. 
There's a lifestyle that goes along with lordship. And Jesus is the one who gets to determine that lifestyle, not us. The way we say it around our church is that if Jesus is not Lord of all in your life, then Jesus is not Lord at all in your life. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the Bible Belt. So Charlotte, I hail from RDU. I'm originally from Georgia. And I would consider all of these the Bible Belt. In the Bible Belt, it is perfectly normal for someone to be a regular participate participant in sinful things that the Bible calls wrong, right? While claiming the name of Jesus every Sunday morning. Um, one, one pastor put it this way. He said, Bible Belt Christianity has just enough Jesus to make me feel acceptable, but never enough to make me uncomfortable. It's like auditing a class in college where you're saying, I want the information, but none of the responsibility." In Bible Belt Christianity, you know who Jesus is. You probably know why he came. You know he's going to return one day. You, you, you know you need forgiveness of sin. Intellectually, you know the right things. You know a lot about him, but you don't personally know him. And this was me before I became a true follower of Jesus. So, so I got saved. I got saved my junior year in college. Um, up to that point, I grew up at church my entire life. Was in church every single Sunday morning. Um, went through confirmation class. I had the nifty little gold necklace with the cross that I got when I made my decision. When I went through all that, um, I knew John 3.16. Uh, I knew that the, the, the way I saw my relationship with God was that every single day, the way I saw it is I filled up a whiteboard, kind of uh, all my sins every single day. And as long as I asked for forgiveness at the end of the night, those things were cleared. And so you just got to remember to ask for forgiveness before you fall asleep because you don't want to fall asleep when you, you know, you don't want to fall asleep and die. And then still have this whole thing you forgot to ask for forgiveness for. And so um, I, I, I tell you, th this was my life. Like I was a good kid. I was a straight A student, kind of all athlete, everything. I was a yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Uh, I, again, I would always sleep with the girl I was dating. Like by cultural standards, I'm an upstanding, respectable young kid who's in church every Sunday. Could tell you the story. I'm the kid that's hammered drunk at 2 a.m. And if you drop a GD, I'd be like, don't say that. That's super offensive to me. I'm a Christian, right? I've also been able to grow a beard since I was like 12. So I've been the ringleader of parties and like buying stuff since. Um, and man, there just came a time where like the, the, the way I used to, this is not a joke. Um, when my life started falling apart in 2007, it's a whole different story. When God started drawing me to himself, um, I mean, I just went on this insane party tear, which I was always a partier, but um, it was awful, like downward spiral. And uh, again, kind of all my morals went out the window. And just to kind of give you a picture of, of what I thought religion was, what, what a relationship with God was, is at that time, I'm like, I'm just being ridiculous, partying, sleeping around. And um, anytime I'd get done sleeping around, I would pray two things instantly. The second I get done, God, please don't let her be pregnant and forgive me for that for I know it was wrong. And I thought like, as long as I pray those, I'm good. It doesn't matter this lifestyle I'm living. As long as I just ask for forgiveness, that's all I got to do because Jesus is my savior. And I came to recognize that's not it at all. My, my own story is proof that profession does not always equal possession. And this should be a reality check for those of you who might have prayed the sinner's prayer, but have had no accompanying life change since you prayed that prayer. Because salvation is not just information we learn. It is a relationship with a savior we love. This sobering reality hits us nowhere harder than in Luke chapter six, when Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to do? Or again, in Matthew chapter seven, look at this one with me. There might be no more sobering verses in all the Bible. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. For many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? Did we not go to church every Sunday in your name? Did we not tithe in your name? Did we not serve in your name? All great things, by the way. They don't earn your way into heaven. I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Not some, many will say to me. Not every once in a while, someone who says they're a Christian actually isn't. Many will say to him, wait, I, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I went through confirmation class. I, I filled out the card. I, I texted the salvation number. He's going to say, I never knew you. 
You didn't submit to me as Lord. Listen, if you are regularly walking in darkness while claiming to know Jesus, you are deceiving yourself about where you stand, no matter how badly you want it to be true. And what you're going to hear that day is away from me. I never knew you. Bible is far more interested in how you walk than it is your verbal profession or your one-time religious experience. You cannot walk in darkness while claiming fellowship with God. Bible-built faith is not saving faith. Let's not be deceived. Nor should we downplay or diminish our sin. Look at verses 8 and 10. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we actually make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, see, we tend to just downplay or rationalize our sin. And the way we do that most often is by comparing it to others. So we think, well, the empirical evidence that I'm not a bad person is because I know I'm better than blank, right? Like, sure, I'm I mean, who doesn't gossip a little bit, but I don't talk about people as much as she does. Sure, sure, I might lash out in anger at my kids, but I'm still way more involved and way better dad than he is. Again, kind of my life, like, sure, I'm always sleeping with my girlfriend, but it's only with her and we're really committed to one another. Like, come on, Pastor, none of these things are bad enough for you to categorize me as someone who walks in darkness. I want to say this as lovingly and as pastorally as I can to you, Mercy Church. Excusing or rationalizing your sin will not save you from your sin. If you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. You can try to rationalize it. You can try to call it something else. You can call it a mistake. You can call it a misstep. You can call it a bad habit. You can call it a vice. Verse 10 says that that is tantamount to calling God a liar because God says it is sin and sin is what separates you from fellowship with the Father in the first place. According to the Bible, there is no such thing as a follower of Jesus who follows their own ways. Friends, you cannot bend scripture to fit your lifestyle. If you're truly walking with Jesus, you bend your lifestyle to fit and submit to scripture. Scholar D.A. Carson says that whenever a Christian challenges the authority of the Bible, the first thing he wants to ask him is, who are you sleeping with? What he's getting at, the question is, what are you participating in right now that you don't want to give up for the sake of Jesus? Because if you're being honest, you just like that thing more than you love Jesus. Now, does this mean that the only way to be know you're saved is that you do everything right? John Wesley said that his approach to preaching was to overwhelm you with law and then rescue you with grace. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I get pretty overwhelmed when I read stuff like 1 John. And John senses that, which is why he rescues us with grace. He doesn't want us to think that perfection is the test of authentic faith. So look at verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we've established that, we have fellowship with one another. And then here it is. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's your confidence check. You are a disciple if you walk in the light. It's that simple. Now, walk is just kind of a New Testament way of saying your your Christian life. It's the kind of life you live. It's seeing things the way God sees them. It's sharing his values. It's loving what God loves. It's hating what God hates. Walking in the light means you, 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 you've, let, let's say you've, you've bought the clubs. You're taking the golf lessons. You're fixing your slice. You're continuing to grow in your love and maturity of the game, if you will. When God invites you to walk in the light, he doesn't mean that you become more and more perfect by doing fewer bad things and just more good things. And if you just chart that progress, you'll know you're good. It's not what he means. He does mean that we will willingly put ourselves in our darkness in the light of God, allowing that light to search our hearts every day and that the light of God will keep shining the path in front of us. The word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
And even when we do sin and stray from that path, the light of God alerts us to that. That's conviction. It's that word. Corrects us, convicts us, and draws us back to the path of life. In other words, those who walk in light are ironically those who are most aware of where the darkness is at work inside of them. See, if the Spirit is regularly convicting you of your sin and you're regularly having to confess things and ask for prayer for things and ask for accountability and things and saying, I just want to grow in this, to that, I would say, praise God. Because it means the Spirit of God is at work and living inside of you. And I know you're like, but I thought, you know, you said God's light means that he's perfect and we have to be perfect to be in his presence, like nothing less than perfect. And so if we're to walk in the light as he is in the light, doesn't that mean I need to be perfect in order to have fellowship with God? It's a great question. You guys ask really good questions. Um, think about it like this. How many of y'all have ever been snow skiing? Anybody been snow skiing? Okay, so I went snow skiing for the first time um, just like two years ago, ever. And, you know, the first time you go snow skiing, like you, you really have two goals. Don't die and don't break something. That's, that's pretty much it. And so um, my buddy's actually over here. It was a uh, good skier, Jason, um, teaching me how to ski. And so he's patient with, you know, he's like, you, you want a pizza? And then you want a French fry and you want a pizza. You, want, you know, he's, he's like, this is how you go. This is how you stop. This is how you slow down. And I mean, I'm kind of, I kind of look like a baby giraffe when I'm doing it. And you slowly kind of start getting it. Um, and we're on like the little slopes. And so like little five-year-old kids are like, shoo, like loser. I'm like, you, shoo. Um, uh, that's how I know I'm a sinner. The things I think toward a five-year-old that passes me on the ski. Um, and so, uh, but I'm kind of going and what Jason tried to, to, to instill in me was like, hey, we're, we're not working here for perfection. We're not going to get that on day one. What we're working for here for is progress. What, what we're working for here is a general direction. So when you think about walking in light as God is in light, don't think perfection, think progress and direction. So, so here's what I mean by that. Like, sure, you as a follower of Jesus, you might still struggle with lust. But praise God that you don't find yourself in front of your computer screen late at night anymore, but rather on your knees in prayer, asking God to satisfy you instead. You, you might still struggle with anger, but praise God you're able to recognize when that begins rising up in you and you've learned to text a friend asking for prayer instead of lashing out at the next person who does something you don't like. To be a Christian does not mean you have arrived. The question is, is there progress in holiness? Is there awareness and confession of sin? Is there a general direction heading toward the likeness and maturity in Jesus? Is there growth? If so, praise God. See, following Jesus doesn't mean we never sin. It just means that when we do sin, we will confess it. That's what's so beautiful about this verse. Look at verse seven again. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Don't miss this. Let's be astute Bible readers. Does it say the blood of Jesus will cleanse? The blood of Jesus might cleanse? If you do enough good things and you repent hard enough, perhaps he'll cleanse? It says the blood of Jesus cleanses, not shall cleanse. We're cleansed now. The moment a sinner trusts in Jesus, he's fully forgiven. And let me nerd out a little bit on you. That's written in the present tense, meaning this is a continual cleansing. You were cleansed yesterday. You're cleansed today. There's new mercies. You will be cleansed tomorrow. This is incredible. The Greek word for cleansing here is katharizo. What does that sound like? It sounds like the word cathartic. It's where we get that word from. I love the dictionary definition of cathartic. It says, providing psychological relief through the open expression of strong emotions. Y'all want to know why I talk so loud and fast, why I'm so passionate about preaching the gospel, why I have such strong emotions about it? Because I know I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, my Savior. You want to know why it's near impossible to stand next to my wife while she's worshiping without seeing tears stream down her face, why she has such strong emotions about it? Because she knows she's been cleansed. I just want to ask you, when was the last time the gospel brought you to tears? When was the last time you wept out of gratitude for what God has done for you? 
When was the last time you were grieved to the point of tears because of your sin, but then you shed tears of gratitude because of Jesus shed blood on your behalf? And the good news, mercy just keeps on getting gooder because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from some sin, from certain sins. Let me not say it. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Pastor, what about that thing I was doing last night? I want to tell you the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What about that thing that I did 20 years ago that I've never told anybody about? I want to tell you the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But, but me and my boyfriend have already fallen into sin so many times. How could God forgive us because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin? What about that thing that's caused me guilt and shame and regret my entire life that makes it hard for me to look somebody in the eye lest I think they might know what I've done or been a part of? I want to tell you the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And right now, what the enemy wants to do in this moment is he wants to unroll the scroll containing all of your sins. And what you need to do is stand on the firm foundation of what Jesus has done for you. And you reply back and you say, that's it, huh? And then he probably is going to pull out another scroll. He can be like, nope, this is a whole other thing. And you tell him, all right, that is all my sin. You forgot one thing though, Satan. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all those things. And so that may be my record, but I'm redeemed because of Jesus's righteousness. I know I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is so much greater of a savior. Listen, I don't know what God might be revealing to you this morning, but what I do know is that the blood of Jesus Christ will cover it if you will confess it. When you lay your sin at the feet of Jesus, he takes it all. It's what theologians call the great exchange. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. And then because of that righteousness, we are united with him in Christ. That's what we're symbolizing in baptism, that you're going down under the water, dying with Christ, being raised to new life. You are now united so that one day when I stand in front of God as a sinner, yes, he's not even gonna see me as a forgiven sinner. He's gonna see me united with his son, Jesus Christ. And he's gonna see me in perfection and righteousness because I have been united with Jesus because of the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You lay your sin at the feet of Jesus. He takes it all. And when you bring those things to him, what you're going to find is not condemnation. You are going to find comfort. You're not going to find guilt. You're going to find grace. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this. In um, 2005 is when I graduated high school. So that dates me there. Um, and the, the week of high school graduation, I went to, I don't know if any of y'all from it, we used to have something called Country Fair in Atlanta. It was like a two-day country music festival. Again, pre-Jesus days, let, let me just set that, okay? Pre-Jesus days. Um, super long story short, I get, like most awesome, really cool guys do, you know, getting a huge fist fight at Country Fair. Um, and I got jumped by three guys, like bad, bad, bad. Like, I still have scars from it. I show my bear, I got a huge scar here on, and um so this is like three days before high school graduation. So you're getting pictures, you're doing the walk. And you know, for, for your parents, that's like such a big deal, right? And so um, the next morning, I'm headed back. I still live with my parents. I'm a senior in high school. And I call my mom on the way home and I say, hey, um, I'm about to pull in the driveway and I need you to not freak out. And of course, she's like, what's wrong? Is everything okay? I'm like, it's fine. Don't worry. So I'm sure she's thinking like, did I get in a car wreck? What happened? And I will never forget... Uh, I mean, I was busted up um, and I stepped out of the car. My mom was waiting in the driveway when I pulled in and I stepped out of the car and I'll never forget. I'm going to, I'm going to tear up like thinking about my mom. <laughs> um, she just, she takes one look at me and my mom just bursts into tears and she runs up to me and just wraps me in her arms. My mom's like five, two. She just wraps me and she like grabs my face. She's like, baby, are you okay? Like, what do you need? How, what happened? Um, like, uh, what, what do you need from me? Everything's going to be all right. Like I'm here. And um, here I am a high school senior boy. My mom is just, and in that moment, this entire thing was my fault, my stupidity, my sin. My mom had every right in the world to be like, what were you thinking? Are you a moron? Like, are you an idiot? It's not what she met me with. She didn't meet me with condemnation. I was met with comfort from a mom who loves me unconditionally. 
And for some of you, I know the darkness in your life seems so dark that you are scared to bring it into the light. You're scared to lay it before God because gosh, some of us have such a twisted view of God as father, because what you expect to hear from God, if you do that is a word of judgment or a word of disappointment. You expect to get out of your proverbial car, lay your sins before, and you expect God to be standing there, arms crossed, pointing, wagging a finger in disappointment with a disappointed look on his face saying, I told you so. I told you don't participate in that thing. What'd you think was gonna happen? What's wrong with you? You an idiot? I tell you with God, there's no semblance of I told you so. Because of Jesus, there's only comfort and rest and peace and joy and satisfaction, even when it's your own fault. Because God knows that guilt and shame and condemnation, while they might be able to produce behavioral change in someone, they can never produce true heart change. Romans 2.4, is it his condemnation that leads us to repentance? The strong hand that leads us to repentance? No, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his grace that breaks our bondage to sin. Over and over again, we rebel. Over and over again, we mess up. Over and over again, mistake after mistake. Yet over and over again, God takes us back. Over and over again, he forgives our sin. Over and over again, we wake up with new mercies every single morning. This brings us to our last question. This is where we land the plane. How can you know that his mercies are for you? How can you be sure that you yourself have been cleansed? Look at verse nine, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess is such a great word. It just means to speak the same. So basically confession is to say about sin the same thing that God says about it. That's it. Confess, you believe upon Jesus. Believe that he's offering forgiveness and cleansing from all sin. Nothing else you need to do to be saved except for just to come to him. No prayer you need to pray. There's no Hail Mary you need to perform. There's no penance you need to participate in. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for you covers and cleanses all sin. All you have to do is receive the pardon offered to you on the cross. Y'all, God has never rejected a sinner who sought salvation by Jesus. And so practically, what do you do with this? Three incredibly quick things. Number one, I'd say just diagnose your life. Very simple. I mean, just be honest with yourself. Ask questions, ask others to speak into your life. And ask questions like, I mean, do I desire the things of God? Is my life governed by the word of God? Do I pursue holiness in my life? Do I grieve over my sin? Do I live life for my pleasure or for God's? It's true, you need to make a one-time decision to follow Jesus, but it's also true that if that decision is genuine, it's gonna lead to a day-by-day decision to continue following Jesus. So diagnose your life. Number two, confess your sin. We've hammered this one enough, but confession just involves admitting your sin, agreeing with God about it, and then turning from your sin. That's what repentance is. The basis of our relationship with God is not our sinlessness, but his forgiveness and love. And then lastly, you just walk toward the light. Y'all, it's the choices that we make that move us back into darkness or forward into the light. What does walking in the light look like? It looks like being engaged in Yes, ongoing confession and prayer and time with God, a quiet time or whatever words you want to use. It looks like reading, memorizing your Bible, diagnosing again where your life doesn't match up with scripture. It looks like walking with and in community. It looks like being a part, a covenanted part of the local body, the local church. Most importantly, walking in toward the light just looks like resting in Jesus. Diagnose your life, confess your sin, walk toward the light. Take a step of faith and take another. In his early 80s, Charles Templeton agreed to an interview with Lee Strobel. If you know that name, Strobel, 
course, was the famous Christian author who wrote the book, A Case for Faith, trying to disprove Christianity ended up becoming one. Throughout the interview, Templeton in his 80s was clear about his disapproval and disbelief in the Bible and abandonment of Christianity. But then Strobel asked him about the person of Jesus. And here's what Templeton had to say. He said, Jesus was the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. Jesus was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. And to this day, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. Templeton said, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore Jesus for everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. There have been many other wonderful people, he said, but Jesus is Jesus. He's the most important human being who's ever existed. At that moment, Strobel interviewing Templeton said that Templeton's voice began to crack and he heard words he never expected to hear as Templeton said through choked up tears, he said, I miss Jesus. Tears begin flooding this 80-year-old's eyes. He buries his face in his hands. Strobel says he begins to sob uncontrollably. He fights to compose himself. Eventually, after a long period of time, he sighs deeply, wipes away his tears, and then finally, quietly but adamantly, shakes his hand and insists, enough talk about that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. A few short years later, Templeton died, never truly experiencing the forgiveness and loving kindness of God. What about you? How do we bow our heads? If you don't. Mercy Church, don't miss Jesus. Don't wave your hand and say, enough talk about that. Father, I pray that you do what only you can do. That you simultaneously convict and encourage. That you give people God, confidence in what Jesus has done for them. That you continue to push people out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.